Hi, my name is Stephanie Paulson and welcome to the virtual breakout entitled Honest Parenting, how our deepest fears can unlock our greatest strengths. Why don't I just start off telling you a little bit about myself. I've been married for over 18 years to a man I actually met in junior high. We have two kids. Our son Jack is almost a sophomore in high school and our daughter Julia who is a rising eighth grader. I am also in school myself as I'm finishing up my Masters of Divinity at Multnomah Seminary which has been a really exciting and not gonna lie a challenging endeavor. But most of all what I want you to know about me is that I am a fellow mom on the journey of raising kids in 2020. I am not a child psychologist, I'm not a developmental specialist, and a lot of what I'm about to say are things that I'm trying to work on in real time. I realize that my kids might be older or perhaps even younger than yours, but what I'm finding in my research is that our overarching fears about raising kids, no matter their age, are generally the same. Now, I don't think I have to remind us that we are living in very uncertain times. The world around us is constantly changing, and we have been forced to let go of any illusion of control we thought we once had. So, on top of our already existing fears about raising kids, we are now having to add a whole new layer of what it means to parent in the midst of a worldwide pandemic. In all honesty, I first gave this talk back in February to a group of moms with preschoolers. Life seemed so much simpler back then. But as I was going over my original talk, I decided to not do too much tweaking because while our world has changed, our anchor and our ultimate source of truth and hope we have as parents has not, and it will not. So let's just get right to it. Let's talk about what fears we might be juggling as parents today. Now, if I were in the same room with you, I would just have you shout out some of the first things that pop into your head about what makes you afraid. Obviously, we can't do that, so I'm just going to take a stab at some of the fears we might be dealing with. Here's my list. Coronavirus, living in the midst of a worldwide pandemic and all the implications that go with that. Issues of racism and systemic oppression. Are we doing enough to educate, equip, and empower our children to stand up to this great evil? Media, technology, with our kids at home more and more and less opportunity for outside engagement, our kids' screen time is up 50% more now than before. Bullying, if they're online, chances are they will come across some kind of cyber bully or perhaps you might be afraid of bullying at school. Violence, strangers, letting kids out of sight, health, mental health, fear our kids won't measure up, fear we're not going to measure up, vaccines, and what in the world is education going to look like next fall? So the list could go on and on. Now, I want you to think back to your own childhood. What fears were your parents mostly dealing with? So for me, I was born in 1979, which means I'm a part of Generation X. These are the kids born somewhere between 1965 and 1980. Okay, so back then, divorce rates were actually higher 
and many women went back to work. My parents weren't divorced, but my mom did go back to work when I was in about fourth grade. That puts me at like roughly nine years old. It was super common for me to walk home from school with my friends and use a key that was hidden under the mat to where I would let myself in our house and stay unsupervised for about two hours before my mom got home. It was then that I learned the deliciousness of smothering Betty Crocker chocolate frosting on graham crackers and binge-watching my most favorite after-school show, Saved by the Bell. Sometimes I'd walk to a friend's house, but mostly I just stayed home. Did I ever feel abandoned or neglected? That thought didn't even cross my mind. But now, letting a child walk home unattended and then staying home alone is not only frowned upon, it could get you arrested. As I was doing some research for this talk, I came across a news story about a family from Maryland back in 2015. These parents allowed their children, ages 6 and 10, to walk home from a playground just about a mile from their house. These parents were actually charged with neglect and put under investigation with Child Protective Services. The charges were actually dropped, but this case highlights how far the parenting pendulum has swung. Gone are the days when kids were allowed to run around in their neighborhoods unsupervised, when kids had afternoons free and they weren't overscheduled with all these extracurricular activities. Gone are the days when kids had time to be creative and find new things to explore. And gone are the days when kids didn't have to worry about social media and the barrage of distractions via Instagram, Snapchat, or the 24-hour news feeds. The reality is we are living in a very different day and age, and with it comes new fears about raising kids in this generation. In fact, I actually think fear-based parenting is our new cultural norm. But have you ever really taken the time to slow down and think about what are you really afraid of? To see if what you're fearing is really worth worrying about. What do you think would happen if we looked our fears straight in the face and we found that the things we fear could possibly be the greatest opportunities for our children to grow and mature into healthy adults? Okay, so to help us assess where we are in regards to fear and parenting, I have a little checklist. As I read these sentences, just be honest with yourself whether or not these might be true of you. Listen, there is no shame here. And just to make you feel better about yourself, most of these are true for me or have been at one point in time. Fear check-in. Number one, I go to great lengths to make sure my child doesn't feel afraid. Number two, I'm overprotective of my child much of the time. Three, I worry about my kids more than most parents do. Four, I rarely allow my child to go places or do things with another caregiver. Five, there are many things I don't allow my child to do because I worry that he or she might get hurt physically or even emotionally. Six, I think it's my job to prevent my child from being criticized. Seven, I devote a lot of energy into thinking about worst case scenarios my child might experience. Eight, when my child is scared, I am quick to jump in and rescue. Nine, I spend much more energy calming my child than teaching him or her how to calm themselves. And 10, much of my energy goes toward reducing all types of risks my child might face. 
So, how did you do? Did you agree with most of these statements? Or maybe you felt yourself actually getting a little defensive, because after all, it is a somewhat scary and dangerous world out there, and your mama bear instincts is to protect your babies like it's no one's business. Okay, I'm not saying that this list is indicative of bad parenting necessarily. Obviously, we need to consider the age and development of our children. For example, we're probably not going to let our preschooler walk to Starbucks alone or be dropped off at a movie theater. But trust me, if you have young kids, those days are coming. We're probably not going to let our child play with matches, stick their head in a hot oven, or eat liquid detergent pods, as tempting as that might be. All these things fall within the range of normal, healthy parenting. But nowadays, it's kind of hard to know what truly is healthy, helpful parenting. I'll never forget when my son, my firstborn son, Jack, started preschool. He was about two and a half. He went two days a week, and pickup time was precisely at 12.30, which meant I was always there by 12.20. However, I remember this one day where I got stuck in some terrible, terrible traffic, and I was running late. I knew I wasn't going to get there until like 12.40. In my car, I literally started panicking. My body was all twisted into a knot. My breathing became shallow, and I think I was experiencing road rage. Was I afraid the teachers were going to give me the evil eye for being late? No, not at all. What I was really thinking was, what if Jack feels like he can't depend on me? What if he feels like I abandoned him? Or worse, what if he thinks I forgot about him? Obviously, my reaction was a little extreme. If I could talk to that stressed out and anxious mom today, I would tell her to calm down. The teachers were taking great care of her son, and she was doing the best to get to where she was supposed to be. Being a few minutes late was not going to make or break her son. But at that moment, I let fear and anxiety win. Do you think my number one goal in raising Jack was to make sure he always knew that I would be on time, or even early, whenever I had to pick him up from something? Of course not. That is not a realistic goal. But... One of my goals was to help Jack know I would always come back to get him, but if I was a few minutes late, he was still safe, loved, and okay. This is a clear case of how when we let our parenting fears win, we can actually lose sight of what we're really aiming for in raising our kids. So what I'd like to do now is just zero in on three main areas we might be tempted to let fear win. Area one. Fear wins when we inadvertently close our children off to the world around us. The constant barrage of news feeds and media outlet causes stress and anxiety, which can ultimately change the way we view the world and the way we parent our kids. When we are always reading stories of tragedies, it feels like the world might be falling apart. But something we're tempted to forget when these big news stories come to the forefront of our iPhones are the actual statistics. For example, your child is actually at a much higher risk of getting killed in a car accident on the way to school than experiencing a school shooting. We are the first generation who can literally research anything and everything. The problem is when we are faced with a never-ending supply of parenting options, fear-mongering, and sensationalism, we can easily become parenting hypochondriacs. 
How do you view the world? Do you see danger creeping around every door and suffer from worst case scenario thinking? Well, if you do, don't worry, you're in good company because that was pretty much my MO when my kids were young. However, what we need to be aware of is that anxious parenting actually produces anxious kids. Anxiety disorders are not just a genetic phenomenon. Anxiety can actually be a learned behavior. And overprotective parents who are constantly hovering over their kids in an attempt to keep them safe can actually be causing them harm. When parents don't have a grip on their own anxiety, and they're always trying to control the outside factors, they actually can cause their children to become overly cautious and dependent on them. Overprotective parenting is one of the reasons we are seeing the rise of boomerang kids. You know these kids, the ones who come back to live with their parents after college. Well, studies are finding that one of the main reasons young people return to live with mom and dad is that they can't handle the emotional distress associated with independent living. With mom and dad protecting and hovering over their every move, now that they're on their own, they don't know how to cope. Now, I'm pretty sure your parenting goal for your kid is not that they would come home from college, move back into their childhood bedroom, expect you to resume doing their laundry as they eat everything out of the pantry. But if we're not careful, if we let our fears about the safety of the outside world win, our kids will not have the opportunity needed for them to develop courage. And courage is really what most of us moms want for our kids. So instead of letting fear win by shutting off our kids from the world around them, let's instead help our kids move towards courage. Courage is one of the greatest gifts we can help foster in our kids, and the Bible is full of stories of courage. One of the Hebrew words translated courage means to show oneself strong. Moses was courageous when he confronted the Pharaoh of Egypt and commanded him to let God's people go. Joshua was courageous when he conquered Canaan, and young David was courageous when he faced and battled the giant Philistine Goliath. However, the most important thing the Bible actually says about courage is what ought to be the basis for our courage, and that is God's presence and power with those who have put their faith in King Jesus. That is the basis for courage. Now, this doesn't mean that we should never have any fears. Fear is a natural human emotion. However, fear doesn't have to be, nor should it really be, our motivation and how we parent our kids. So let's become aware when our own fears might be getting in the way of opportunities for our kids to develop age-appropriate courage. Because like Moses, Joshua, and David, our kids will inevitably face situations that are new and unknown to them. That's just a fact of life. I know for me, one of my greatest hopes for my children is that they follow Jesus' leading in their lives no matter where that may take them. But part of my job as, to mom, as a mom is to continue to help them build their courage, instilling in them that God's presence and power is with them no matter what so that they can take steps that move them beyond just seeking their own personal safety and comfort in this world. So I ask you, 
how can you help your child to be more courageous? Maybe your child is younger and you could allow them to play more independently and, and a little bit more unstructured. Did you know that when kids are allowed to explore by themselves, they actually gain tools for confidence, problem solving, and creativity? Maybe if your child's an elementary age or middle school age, you can encourage them to try something new. It could be a new sport, an instrument, or a new hobby, or maybe it is as simple as reaching out and starting a new friendship with somebody. If you have a high schooler, maybe you can encourage them to start their own business or seek out a job opportunity. Or maybe it's time for them to start looking into college and all that's wrapped up in that process. Let your child be the spearhead in navigating some of these big questions so that they can learn to build courage. So instead of seeing the world as a bad, bad place with danger around every corner, let's instead help our kids feel confident to step into the world bringing truth and light wherever they go because they know God's presence and power is always with them. The second area we are tempted to let fear win is when we feel responsible for our child's emotions. Okay, it is totally normal to want to cheer up your child when they are sad or calm them down when they are upset. But if we are always taking charge of our child's emotional state, they will not learn to do it themselves. However, many parents are afraid that if their child isn't always happy and content, that somehow they have failed. But the reality is, if we're chasing down every negative emotion our child experiences and trying to immediately alleviate any sense of discomfort they won't know how to regulate their own emotions. So when your child is an infant, it's totally up to you to help regulate their emotions. You pick them up, you change them, you feed them, you bounce them, all the things. However, as your infant turns into a toddler, they're ready to start recognizing and labeling their feelings. They might know how to ask for a drink of water if they are thirsty, or they could take their sweatshirt off if they're getting warm. They're beginning to understand how to adapt to their environment, which actually gives them a sense of autonomy and control. What research shows is that many times parents are actually afraid to allow their child to experience the range of emotions because they might be uncomfortable with their own emotions. Just a few months ago, my daughter, Julie and I, were chatting on her bed about a certain friend situation at school. One friend, in my opinion, was choosing to be a bit petty and unkind, and her behavior was affecting a whole group of girls, my daughter being one of them. And the more my daughter told me about her situation, the more I saw the hurt on her face, which fired me up like a mama bear, and it instantly took me back to junior high. How dare this girl make my daughter feel this way? I had an urging sense to take care of the issue myself. I hated junior high drama, and frankly, I'm still uncomfortable with conflict. But my job is not to take responsibility for my daughter's emotions. It's to help her understand and articulate how she's feeling and coach her through different options of handling different situations. What my goal really is for my children is ownership. Because when we own something, we know the boundary lines of what we have the power to control.
So, how do we do that? How do we help coach our kids to own their emotions? Well, the first thing we want to do is actually help our kids put a label to their feelings. We can't own our feelings if we don't even know what feelings we're experiencing. So, if your child is blowing up with anger, you could say, Wow, it looks to me that you're feeling really angry inside. Or, I can tell that something is very frustrating for you right now. Another way we can coach our kids is to own their feelings by being a model ourselves, by using feeling words in our everyday conversations. For example, you could say, Today I felt really sad when I visited Grandma and she wasn't feeling well. Or, I felt so happy and cared for when my friend surprised me with coffee today. Well, after we help our kids name their emotions, we have to validate them. Even if you think your child is being absolutely ridiculous, they need to know they are being heard and that you understand. Okay, so I actually had to use this tactic just last week when my teenage son wanted a ride to tennis practice after working a long day of manual labor. Unfortunately, riding his bike to tennis was a consequence. He occurred after getting in trouble from the previous week. So I said, Jack, buddy, I know you are super tired and you've worked hard all day. And in your mind, it is so much simpler and easier for you to just catch a ride to practice right now. But that wasn't our agreement. Okay, so he didn't really like my answer, but I actually think he appreciated that I understood how he was feeling physically. The last thing we wanna do is just let our children sit with uncomfortable emotions. Remember, it's not our job to always put a smile on our children's faces, but it is our job to help guide and coach them to deal with their emotions on their own. A lot of times, I find that kids work out their emotions through things like movement, music, and art. Emotions sometimes just need a place to go, and that place is usually just out. But it's, in, it's important to remember that the overall message we want to send to our kids is that emotions are actually healthy and they're normal and it's part of God's design for his creation. Our goal for our child should not, to be, should not be to avoid negative emotions, but rather help them to recognize and own their own emotions, validate them, and then learn how to manage them in a healthy way. Likewise, we also want our children to know that they actually don't have to own other people's emotions. So what we're ultimately doing in training our kids to take ownership is helping them to set up healthy boundaries, which is an incredible, powerful tool for life. Okay, so the last area we can let fear win is when we don't allow our kids to fail or face hard situations. So no one really sets out to seek a path of failure. And the same is totally true for how we raise our kids. We mothers pride ourselves on taking amazing care of our children, and rightfully so. Motherhood is an extremely valuable job. However, sometimes we can fall into the trap of rescuing our children so they don't have to face negative circumstances or consequences. But every time we rescue our children from an age-appropriate challenge, we send a very clear message that we believe they are incompetent, incapable, 
and unworthy of our trust. Here's the truth of what research has shown over and over again. Children whose parents don't allow them to fail are less engaged, less enthusiastic about their education, less motivated, and ultimately less successful than children whose parents support their autonomy. When we back off just enough for our children to experience failure, they actually grow to be more resilient, more capable, and more creative in problem solving. I want you to think for a moment of a time you faced a failure or a challenging situation in your life. And when you look back on that situation now, can you see, even though that time was probably really hard, you're glad you went through it because it helped you grow your character. And perhaps it even helped you realize that there's people around you who love you and care about you. Okay, so I will never forget when my son was in the third grade and he forgot to put his little Lego lunchbox into his backpack. And he realized this just as we got to school and he was headed out of my car and into the doors. I had a meeting to get to that morning, but I was already trying to rearrange my morning so that I could go run home, snag his lunch, and drop it quickly back off at school. But before I did that, something in me told me to call his teacher. I needed her advice. Because sometimes we're too in the middle of our kids' lives, we need an outside voice to give us some perspective. She was so gracious and she totally understood my concerns. Basically, she told me I could do one of two things. I could either go get the lunchbox and rescue him, or I could allow for him to face a little uncertainty and see how he responded. I knew the lunchroom always had extra cup of noodles and milk to give to kids who forgot their lunch. Well, I knew option two was probably the right choice. So I chose it. Yes, I was a total nervous wreck for the rest of the day. Oh my gosh, is my son going to starve? Is he going to have a meltdown? Is he going to pass out in fifth period from low blood sugar? Well, I'm happy to report that none of those things happened. Instead, when I picked him up at the end of the day, he got in my car and said how much he loved cup of noodles and could I please buy some for the house? He was also delighted to find his friends pitch in their lunches and share their goldfish, their fruit leather, and their Oreos. So I could have interrupted that whole learning experience for my son by letting my fears run wild and rescuing him by bringing him his lunch. But I'm so glad I didn't. Jack experienced grace that day in a way I could have never imagined or even planned. Now, I wish I could say that forgetting lunches, shoes, rain jackets, and assignments hasn't happened since. They have. However, I'm continuing to find that the more I don't rescue my kids, the more I'm sending the message to them. You are capable. You can figure this out, and I trust you. A recent article I was reading said that there are two universal myths that far too many American parents believe. And these are, one, overall success in life depends on which college their child attends, and two, failure is terrible for a child's self-esteem. Well, we saw this play out with a college admissions scandal, didn't we? With parents believing anything less than admission to USC or Stanford for their child would have been, you guessed it, a big failure. However, because these parents rescued their children by paying enormous amounts of money 
so that someone else could take their SATs and get them a free ticket to the college of their choice, they unfortunately sent a message to their child that might take a lifetime to undo. I don't trust you. You aren't allowed to fail and you don't have what it takes. What messages are you sending to your child when he or she is failing at something? Are you tempted to constantly find ways to make sure your child is successful in everything they set out to do? How do you personally handle your own times of failure? Do you immediately criticize and judge yourself? If so, you might be sending a message to your child that failure is not acceptable. The other day, I was helping my daughter fry an egg as she has been really into creating her own version of the Starbucks double smoked bacon, cheddar, and egg breakfast sandwich. Just as we were both marveling over the perfection of this fried egg we had going on the stove, I went to scoop up the egg with a spatula to place on her perfectly toasted bun when the whole thing slid off and landed splat on the floor with the yolk running in every direction. It was a total mess and the dismount of the egg to the bun was a total fail. However, instead of getting upset, I just started laughing. I made a mistake, but it really wasn't that big of a deal. I knew we could fry up another egg in about two minutes. Okay, so that's a small example, but what we need to realize is that how we handle even the little failures in life, we are sending a message to our kids. Either they're going to see failure as something to be avoided at all costs, or they are going to know that failure is just a part of being human and it's necessary for growth and development. So remember, fear wins when we don't allow our child to fail or face hard situations. Instead of focusing on preventing our child to face failure, I think there's a more important goal we should be aiming for, and that is perseverance. Perseverance in very simple terms is not giving up. It's the drive to stick with something even when things are challenging or difficult. I remember when my son lost his very first tennis match. I think he was maybe around seven or eight years old. He had tears in his eyes and he threatened to never play again. I told Jack to imagine how many tennis matches he thought Roger Federer had played. Roger Federer is one of the world's best tennis players and I asked Jack, how many times do you think Roger Federer has ever lost? Hundreds? Maybe thousands? I told Jack that Roger Federer is not the best tennis player in the world because he always wins. He's the best because he never gives up and he gets right back on the court even after a tough loss. Kids need to develop perseverance because it is a skill they will use in a lot of areas in their life. They'll use perseverance in their relationships, when they go through tough times with their friends and down the road with their bosses and eventually if they end up getting married. They'll need perseverance in their academics when they bomb a test for the first time or they find out they didn't get into that high school or maybe even that college they were counting on. They'll need perseverance in their physical life if and when they face an illness, when they have to run the mile for PE for the first time or get a broken bone. And they'll need perseverance in their spiritual walk when hard and unexplainable things happen and they wonder where God is in the midst of their pain 
or times when they are feeling spiritually dry and they have no desire or hunger for staying connected with God or reading the Bible or coming to church. All of these situations call for perseverance. In the New Testament book of James, James, the author, is writing to a group of Jewish Christians who have been dispersed and are facing persecution by the Roman Empire. In the second line of the opening letter of James, he writes, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Many times God allows trials to come because they are one of the primary ways he graciously transforms us into the image of his son. Trials help us depend on God because when we are faced with something that's bigger than us and out of our control, we are actually forced to depend on him. And the more we learn to depend on him, the more we come to know how dependable he actually is. And so we learn to persevere through the good times and the bad because we have found something greater than our greatest failure. <coughs> Excuse me. Parents, I urge you, let your kids have healthy opportunities to fail. I'm going to grab just a sip of water real quick. Resist all temptation to rescue your kids because they most likely are coming out of your own fears and insecurities. We can be confident that God has a much better plan for them than we could ever conjure up ourselves. Give them space to learn and trust God so that they can develop perseverance, a much needed virtue in our cultural moment today. It's a definite paradigm shift to move from trying to keep our kids from all the things we fear for them to actually encouraging our kids to move towards certain goals. But I believe this paradigm shift is crucial for raising healthy, resilient followers of Jesus. So we have to get honest. We have to be honest with ourselves, maybe with our trusted friends, and ultimately with God. What are we really afraid of? Do these fears line up with who God says he is? Could some of our fears actually be getting in the way of the much needed opportunities for our children to grow and develop into healthy adults? Are we allowing our children to have space for age appropriate challenges so that they can develop virtues like courage, ownership, and perseverance? Where might God be inviting you today to lay down some of the fears you have been holding onto for your child and instead put your trust in him, knowing that he sees your child and knows them better than you ever do. As we come to a close, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening to this message. Thank you for your willingness to get honest about yourself and about parenting. I know it's not an easy job and sometimes it feels like our hearts are getting ripped out of our chests. But I am praying that the Holy Spirit will continue to be our strength of our heart and empower us to be the parents 
God has designed us to be. Thank you.